0: In general, the Irish electricity industry was in a very backward state uh, at the time of independence. First of all, it was very fragmented. Every town had its own little generating station, usually attached to a business, and very often uh, just there to serve the the shop or the mill or whatever it happened to be. In the big cities, the supply was very confined. Uh, Less than 15% of the population had electricity. The local authorities very often controlled it in the bigger areas and they were competing against each other. So you had a variety of systems, of different types of systems and so forth, in use over a very small area, so there was no possibility of any sort of cooperation. In addition, the idea of electricity as a public service hadn't really come into existence at that stage, or the idea that uh, electricity could prove a major force to uh, industrialise the whole country hadn't really been, been thought about. And this, this was partly why the idea of a national scheme which would help to electrify the whole country and serve as the basis for industrialization was seized upon by the Free State Government because they realised they had to do at least two things. One was they had to show the outside world that they were capable of governing and capable of doing something uh, which would demonstrate this. And the, the uh, Shannon Scheme could be visible proof both at home and abroad of this, which it was. The second thing was they realised they had to move Ireland away from being a predominantly agricultural country. They had to give it some sort of industrial uh, basis and again they saw the uh, Shannon scheme and the ESB as the means of doing this. Maurice Manning recalling the
1: thinking that led to the setting up of the ESB. In the 1920s the use of electricity wasn't widespread W.F. Rowe, who worked for Dublin Corporation Electricity Department at the time, recalls what the situation was like.
2: Well, there were private companies all over the country. And surprisingly enough, some of the big towns hadn't any. Places like Athlone and Kilkenny had no supply companies, while some of the smaller places had, like Clonakilty and so on. And in Dublin? In Dublin, there were three companies in the Dublin conurbation. There was Dublin City... Rath Mines and Pembroke. And there was also a supply system in
1: Dun There was opposition to the setting up of a unified authority, opposition to the ESB, and even before that, opposition
0: to the Shannon scheme. The opposition uh, to Siemens getting the contract came uh, from, I suppose, the ex-unionist element in Ireland at the time. The country was only two or three, four years independent at this stage. And it came, first of all, from the Irish Times. Uh, The Irish Times was opposed, number one, to a scheme as big as this. It thought that that it would probably end up in national bankruptcy and thought the government... I think it felt instinctively that this new government didn't really have the expertise or the skill or the character to carry it all through. So they were opposed to it. They also feared the German influence. And, of course, the Great War wasn't ten years over at this stage. The Irish Times had been very anti-German during the war. And it didn't like the idea of giving this large contract to a German firm, and it talked about the uh, teutonising of the Free State, which would follow from the importation of large numbers of engineers and technicians and so on. As well, opposition came from the Morning Post, the arch-conservative paper in London, which regarded the giving of the contract to Siemens as almost an unfriendly act by the Free State Government. Opposition came as well from the... Uh, financial community in Ireland, from many of the bankers and big business people, for two reasons. They saw it, number one, as state socialism and they were opposed to the state intervening in any way in what they regarded as business. They were also afraid of the cost of the whole thing and I think lacked confidence in the ability of the government to carry it through. And of course, opposition came from all of the existing, as they were called, undertakers, those who owned private electricity generating stations and who were strongly, who who were afraid of what would happen. And these people were organised mainly in the Dublin Chamber of Commerce and the Chamber of Commerce fought a long battle with McGilligan. A number of meetings were, in fact, broken up. Uh, McGilligan gave better than he got. He could be very tough, almost abusive on occasion when he doubted the motives of those whom he was fighting. And, uh, in in fact, in the end, he had to fight two campaigns against him: The campaign over the building of the Shannon Scheme and the campaign over the setting up of the ESB. In each case, he used very rough methods, and in each case, he won. Despite all the opposition,
1: the ESB got started. Dr P. G. Murphy was there at the very beginning.
3: Yes, I was the first employee. In 1925, the government decided to build the Shannon Scheme. That's the hydroelectric development of the Shannon River at Limerick or Crusher. And two years later, McGilligan decided that he'd have to set up a board to run the Shannon scheme and all connected with it, and um, he passed the Electricity Supply Act, which set up the ESB. Now, in recruiting the staff, they looked for people with experience, and I was happened to be lucky and one of the few that had experience in high tension, and uh, I got the job. That's where I began. Two names keep cropping
1: up in the history of the early days of the ESB. One is that of Patrick McGilligan, a tough Minister of State. The other, Dr Tommy McLaughlin, who is now talked of as virtually the only progenitor of the ESB. PJ Dowling worked closely with him. He was a man who was very
4: full of energy and full of life and a very alert mind and... Um, his enthusiasm for electrical development really was the dominant thing in his life. He, um, anybody that went against that, as far as he was concerned, they were wrong. And he would then proceed to find out whether ulterior motives prompting them or were the genuine in their objections or whatever it might be. And he consequently made several enemies even from ministers and civil servants and business interests, even down to his own colleagues in the board. But um, most of them would admit, would admit I think, that uh, they had to pay a fair amount of respect to his point of view, even though ultimately they mightn't agree with it. Uh, before the ESB was set up, as you know, um, there were very many, possibly a couple of hundred different undertakings in the country, and uh, the ESB had to come along and develop the Shannon uh, to produce the electricity, but then they had the very big and daunting job of trying to sell the electricity produced from the Shannon, which as you know at the time was uh, called White Elephant and several other <laughs> unbecoming names. Of course which,
1: the early 30s were the years of the Depression.
4: Oh yes, yes. Uh, But even before the acute depression, there was considerable opposition to the Shannon Scheme. You see, there were rival schemes on the mat. The Liffey Scheme, promoted by some Dublin interests, and uh, the struggle went on there. But the main... uh, Dr. McLaughlin, I think, deserves to be remembered for two things. First of all, the development of the Shannon, which really was his baby. Secondly, the problem of how to dispose of the electricity Uh, the original intention was develop the Shannon, produce the electricity sell it to all the existing supply authorities around the country that would be Dublin, Rat Mines, Urban Council Pembroke Urban Council Dunleary, Borough Cork uh, Limerick and so on and all the other towns that had supply Uh, now The really important decision was that that would not allow development to take place rapidly enough and the boards decided very early on that they should acquire all these undertakings and build a network around the whole country and supply all the towns under a unified scheme and unified rates of charge.
1: And you'd say this was Dr MacLachlan's...
4: He was absolutely sold on that. And uh, anyone that opposed it they had a a very tough fight on their hands.
0: The board of the ESB had been set up, and the first two or three years really were concerned with getting Ardner Crusher uh, into the national system and with extending the scheme to as many parts of the country as possible, starting off in Denster. This meant that work went ahead at a very frenetic pace. But MacLachlan, who was a great goer, who had tremendous enthusiasm, who wanted to get things done, uh, didn't pay very much attention to the actual details of accounting. And within a very short space, the accounts of the board were in an appalling mess and there were no proper records kept of many things. Uh, There was no question of any dishonesty or any fiddling of any kind, but there was a mess. That was the first point. The second point was that MacGilligan, as minister, Uh, was perhaps almost overprotective of the scheme and his whole reputation was bound up in it. But he felt that he and the government weren't getting sufficient information from the board as to what was happening. So an almighty row blew up in late 1929, early 1930 between the government, McGilligan and the board, especially McLaughlin. This row resulted in the sacking from the board of the chairman John Murphy who had been town clerk of Dublin he resigned from the board and so did McLachlan, he resigned in fact on the instructions of the government this was a huge rift between McGilligan and McLachlan who had been very close friends before that and in fact who had caused the scheme to be to, to come into existence probably in the end they were both wrong McLachlan was wrong in that he wasn't paying enough attention to accounting procedures uh, he wasn't answering to the government he was too much in a hurry McGilligan was probably wrong in that he was a little bit too legalistic about the whole thing and didn't make allowances for teething troubles. At least afterwards, I think they both would agree that they had both been a little wrong. Anyway, McLaughlin came back uh, a year later because uh, Fianna Fáil came to power in 1932 and one of their first acts was to appoint McLaughlin back to the board of the ESB. In those
1: early days, the ESB was not the streamlined giant we know today. Bill Rowe and Dr Murphy, both of whom were to rise to high office, remember humble beginnings.
2: I was the first uh, junior Irish engineer to report to the board, and I always remember I arrived at half past nine in the morning, full of enthusiasm, and went into the building in 30 Marion Square, and I couldn't find anybody. I went through all the rooms. Every room was the same, with battleship Lino, table and chair, and what was... Uh, known as a civic guard press and I sat on the stairs until 11.30 when the first of the board arrived
3: When I got the job, first job with the ESB I was the first or one of the first two that was appointed engineer The ESB's headquarters then was one flat in a house, I can't remember the number but it was opposite the hall door of the present government buildings and I arrived the first day, and I said, "Well, now what am I to do?" And they said, "Your first job is to go out and buy a chair for the secretary. You'll be appointed tomorrow."
1: <laughs> in those early years, growth was steady if slow. Inevitably, there were problems. Most of them, growing pains. I
2: sent out to Bray in nineteen hundred and I early in twenty-eight, and we erected a new overhead network there and put in a ten thousand volt underground distribution system to feed that network and every house in Bray was then connected to the new network it was necessary to change all the appliances that the people had because there were DC 110 volt and uh, that was our first experience of changing over a town, after that indeed we changed over many towns later when I was district engineer in Port Alicia, I remember at one time We changed over seven towns at the one time. I I remember I was running out of staff to such an extent that when we were changing over a moat in County Westmead the uh, man in charge was 16 years of age,
3: an apprentice. That was the best we could do.
1: Once the Shannon was harnessed other rivers came in for consideration.
3: The uh, Shannon was very successful economically and from that the board decided to develop other rivers so they surveyed all the major rivers in Ireland and they developed eventually the River Erne, the River Lee and the River Liffey. Hydro power was the cheapest at that time because with hydro you spend a lot of capital but the running costs are very slight. Whereas if you're using a fuel the price varies with the fuel and you can see from the day's price of oil the advantage of water power (laughs)
1: in the late thirties came world war two and the advantages of water power then became obvious but the pigeon house ran on coal charlie kenny was working there as indeed he had worked during world war one the fuel situation during the first world war had been good well the fuel at that time was
5: good it was scotch nuts steam coal Uh, it was easy to work The coal practically worked itself, because we had conveyors which took the coal right up into the bunkers. And uh, there was levers along the line for dumping into different bunkers, according to whatever bunker you wanted to dump into.
1: That was in 1917. But during the Second War, there were no Scotch nuts.
5: Well, when the Second World War came... uh, It wasn't long on until we started getting this uh, very, very bad call, slurry. It has various names.
1: I could imagine. And
5: I needn't tell you, we called it various names too. (laughs) But it was really a terrible trial. And the only thing about it was it did imply men. In fact, there was three men implied where there should be only one, or even more, i could put it at a higher rate. I'd say there were even four men where there should be only one. And instead of the machinery uh, conveying the coal, the men were actually trying to shove the coal along on
1: the machines. It was a heartbreaking job. Dublin City depended on the Pigeon House, and somehow the demands were met. The station, as far
5: as I can uh, recollect, it, it was fuelled on, on uh, rubbish, more or less. Anything they could get. And as a matter of fact, it is, it is a well-known fact that during the war, and the load would get a bit heavy, particularly in the evening time, there was men, a couple of men used to go around and put out the street lights in order to keep the load a bit lighter.
1: The chief executive of the ESB, James Kelly, qualified as an engineer during the war. He remembers the Pigeon House.
6: I came to the ESB as a young graduate engineer just uh, just after the war, actually. And um, my first assignment was in in the old pigeon house station. Uh, I can remember coming out of college with a lot of textbook knowledge, but going down to uh, a very challenging situation. I don't think people really realised the part pigeon house was playing in in the in electricity supply in those days. Uh, we had only two main power stations, which were dependent on the one hand on rainfall and on the other on very inferior type coal. Uh, I can remember the sight of coal boats coming into Pigeon House with grass growing on the top of them and I wondered about this and then I found that it was really scrapings off the top of some of the slag heaps in Britain. Uh, I can remember also the quality of the coal, it was very sticky stuff. Uh, part of my job was doing very sophisticated tests in the laboratory on and, and making announcements as to whether it would burn or wouldn't burn, whereas the men on the floor, I remember, had very unsophisticated ways. They just took a fistful of it and threw it against the wall, and if it stuck to the wall, they told you it wouldn't burn, and they were usually right.
1: (laughs) When peace came in 1945, it was a new beginning for the ESB. There was very little production at that time.
6: We tend to forget that now. We only had two stations. We had Arden Crusher and we had Pigeon House. Uh, we now have 28 power stations and altogether a more complex system but we moved on from these very difficult years in the late 40s and early 50s the next thing on the horizon was the government decision to develop turf on a a large scale in the country and the ESP then had the challenging job of burning it uh, with some technology available in Germany on sod peat but when a new form of peat production came along, Uh, that's mill peat. Uh, We didn't have the technology in Western Europe and uh, we had the challenge of developing that technology.
1: Moore McDowell, who with Morris Manning is writing a history of the ESB, has reservations about the commitment to turf. He feels it was uneconomic. No, it was entirely uneconomic. The ESB was
7: railroaded into using turf, which it didn't want to use in the early 1930s. It was railroaded into it simply in order to make the Turf Development Board, as it was then, later Board Namona, to make its um, programme viable. It never uh, never made any economic sense to the ESP. In fact, they fought hard against it, but they were completely outmaneuvered by a combination of Andrews, who was, was, is, um, a very powerful personality, as you probably know, and Lamass. Andrews was very close to Lamass And it's fairly clear that they railroaded the ESB into using this and using turf for the thermal station simply wouldn't hear of anything other than turf the mass called them in and read the riot act and said he was building a a wall around the country and um, that if he heard any more nonsense about using imported coal or imported oil there'd be a quote remember from a memorandum there'd be held to pay so Brown, the chairman of the board really had no option but to give in on it and that was the that's how the ESB got involved in turf. It of course, wasn't, wasn't their own choice.
1: Looking at it dispassionately, um, it was making use of the only natural resource we had in the way of energy, apart from water.
7: Um, Yeah, it was. Uh, the ESB would argue, and I'd be inclined to agree with them, that if the government wants turf used, if for social reasons, the balance of payments, employment, then it's up to them to say, right, if, if turf is uneconomical, we will explicitly pay the ESB a subsidy to use turf. Instead of which, what they said to the ESB is, you will use such turf as Borden and Mona may provide at such a price as Borden and Mona may charge. And of course, Borden and Mona simply charged the price to clear its own problems, and then the extra cost passed on to the consumer. So yes. it's a disguised subsidy, and the ESB was put in the position of not being able to control either the price of its fuel or indeed the quantity of it, because if, if there was a bad year, well, that was just tough. Um, there was no
1: turf available, uh, or, well, there was never no turf but supplies wouldn't come up to the required amount. Water and turf were the native sources of power. Oil-fired stations were built, but there was always the knowledge that control of this source was not in our hands. Dr P. G. Murphy recalls the search for marginal sources of power.
3: We experimented with wind power. We built a small wind power station, and we discovered what most of the big... Countries before us had discovered that uh, it was a very expensive method of generating electricity, and it was very unreliable because one good storm will blow any mast.
1: The decision to bring electricity to the country at large was a courageous one. Rural electrification was fraught with difficulties. W. F. Roe,
2: you will realise that in 1945, uh, particularly January 1945, the war was still at its height, and. Uh, it was impossible to get material of any kind so we only we laid our plans and and uh, set up our organisation started training men recruiting men and we got very few men from the existing ESB staff because the, it had been run down during the war and of course there was a slump in nine building and everything else we realised that we had to erect a million poles or more Uh, We started off by breaking the uh, country up into areas. We based the area on a parish, uh, roughly about 25 square miles. Now, the parish is varied tremendously in size, but uh, we made the big ones small and the small ones big, so they usually got about 25 square square miles.
1: Nearly every parish in Ireland set up its organising committee, Radio Aaron eavesdropped on such a committee in Barnshire, where Father Hayes was the chairman.
8: Well, now we have come to a very important item of the programme tonight. Uh, I'm sure you are very interested in it. It is the question of rural electrification for the parish. That means getting electricity into every house in the parish. The one thing I'm worried about now, will the people take it? I have no doubts. That will be most useful. But what do you think?
9: Will they take it now? Well, I believe they will take it over Chairman, uh, when uh, it's explained to them the facilities, the usefulness and all the rest of it uh, of having the electric light installed. I have no doubts what they'll take it.
10: Mm-hmm.
8: But how, um, how will you go about it, How will we go about it now? Well, I propose, Tyler, here that get the parish council together and let them canvass all the people in the parish and see if they know the money is interested in it. And it be time to in to see if they're interested and go ahead with it. No, I'll call to every house, would you like? Make a canvas every house, rather, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But before we go canvassing, would we want to have an idea of the cost to be able to let the householders know. That's an important point, right? No, according to the area of their house. The I houses, know, hmm What they'd have to pay per month or two months, as the case may be. So you'd be able to tell them exactly in or about what the cost is Yes. It? You know, they'd be nervous otherwise. Mm-hmm.
6: Reverend yes. Chairman?
8: Yes, Tom? I wonder would the cottage cost? The light well, light for the week. Well, no, uh, somebody told me whether they have done it at about one a week for a, a cottage. And you know the important thing is that, that the county council will put the light free for you. But your sure, one a week would be only eight. seven candles, isn't that all? what to that. Would you? You're preferred to the candles. Well, heaven's sake, is it light only we'll get in? Uh, on, on the farm. Oh, I know. Uh, you mean, could you use it yes. for work on the farm? Well, I think, mind you, that uh, are the least important to the least part of it, to the uh, work on the farm for... To, and be,
6: to be more important, be had, had, when you be get to the end dinner? to have the... To, um, use, for
8: the to use, the use it for the for farm work? The farm work. And what about the, the missus in her own? very useful to her, all right. forget that sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> the
9: farmer's wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, uh, it is necessary to have a general meeting summoned, and have the views of the people on this. And I propose that we have a Sunday morning announcement
8: uh, for a general meeting. Well, are you on favour of that now? Yes. All yes, 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 yes. Oh, right, so. And then you'll you help to canvass the whole area, then we we'll will do our own area, our own mm. area. A yeah, lot of different areas. Help mm. we'll to brighten up the parish anyway. Yes.
1: The ESB sent their men through the length and breadth of Ireland to brighten up the parishes. Their instructions were to complete one scheme in each of the 26 counties before starting on a second project in any one county.
2: When we arrived in a village, we first of all got in touch with our local committee. Now, the local committee was usually headed by the curate, the creamer, manager or the teacher. And with their help, we had to get digs for our various uh, staff, and then we had to recruit casual labour to do the donkey work. Now, perhaps donkey work is a bad word. I'll say... uh, do the heavy digging and hauling. Uh, Each area had a crew of about 80 men and it took four months roughly to complete an area. Each area costing about £80,000. In the whole country there are something like 800 areas.
4: When our men were going around canvassing for consumers the standard Uh, radio set was the ordinary uh, wet battery radio. You had to bring the battery to the garage every week to be charged and the cost was something like, say, two shillings. I forget the amount. But adding that up you found that the uh, cost of charging the battery would be nearly about what these small houses would have to pay as their fixed charge for electricity and this was one of the biggest selling points in getting the smaller houses to sign up for supply some of these houses were very small and very poor of course I remember seeing in uh, North Mayo, north of Kalala um, what must be one of the smallest electrical installations in the world, the two wires from the ESB pole came into the kitchen door. And just inside the kitchen door, there was the meter. There was about two feet of wire from the meter up to a light and a switch beside the light, and that was the complete installation. (laughs) Now, you may, people may be inclined to scoff at that, ...as an electrical installation. But that light was in their kitchen, in their living room. And the difference that that light, a 100-watt lamp... ...made to living in that house... ...I didn't ask
1: you. But did they use 100-watt bulbs? I believe they were very averse to using anything that burned power.
4: Well, uh, we had a very interesting scheme... uh, ...in the rural areas... We gave a 300 watt lamp to every rural consumer that was connected on the theory, on the basis that if they got used to a good light in a room, they wouldn't put it in a smaller lamp when it burned out. And that scheme, I think, was very successful.
1: You, you did this, if you'll excuse the pun, in the light of previous experience that they were using very low powered bulbs and
4: Well, some of them were, I admit. But uh, I I think our scheme worked very well.
1: What kind of effect had it? Uh, Apart from anything else, it must have shown up houses that they hadn't actually seen before.
4: Oh, uh, there was a tremendous improvement in the overall appearance of the houses. People began to see that they wanted uh, walls, wanted decorating and this type of thing. And they certainly rose to the occasion it was just they didn't realize it before, it wasn't that they were lazy or slovenly or anything else, it's just they didn't realize the things wanted doing and then of course the, uh, the change in, in rural life with electricity, I mean the, the, it would take a whole program to go into all the advantages or if you like all the disadvantages of living without electricity starting with running water, see in the rural areas they, they weren't able to turn a tap like you can in a town and get water they were maybe a quarter of a mile away or half a mile away in many cases from another house they had to depend on their own water supply and uh, very often they might have a pump in the yard or they had to go to a river for water but very often it was a very tedious job with electricity, kind of these small automatic pumps and that certainly revolutionised living in the country
1: The erection of the vast network of poles and line is still remembered vividly by the men who accomplished it. Men like Ricky Nelly, Bobby Byrne, James Douglas and Bill Rowe.
2: The first pole wasn't erected until November 47 because there was tremendous difficulty in getting material. We found that uh, the cheapest way to buy our poles was to import them directly from Finland ourselves. We sent a man to Finland made an initial purchase of 90,000 poles and the 90,000 poles that oh, yeah. were delivered first of all they had to be seasoned and then creosote, that's creosote having been stripped first then we had to distribute them around the country to the various areas for this we, we had to purchase a fleet of articulated vehicles I was doing some surveying for a 10,000-volt
7: line between Tala and De Selby quarries, and I was chased from a field by a bull. And um, I certainly didn't like it because I had a heavy waterproof coat on. I was carrying a theodolite, and uh, (laughs) I just made it at the gate and got outside. But the following morning going out, I was telling one of our, if you like, well-experienced and senior linesmen about this, and um, he said, well, look, I'll go out there with you and uh, I'm sure we'd be able to manage that bull all right. So he came out in any case, and uh, we duly went to the field and opened the gate. He went in. The bull came paw- running across to investigate what was going on. My friend got behind the bull, caught him by the tail, and round, ran him round and round that field until he lay down exhausted.
10: <laughs> of course, in the early days, the, uh, the equipment... Wasn't anything like the latter-day equipment, and it was mostly all manual work, with the exception of the continuous use of explosives. But they even produced our problems because you run into ground that was you that was too soft to to use explosives in. Bad weather makes the mix. The the work very very difficult because uh, it softens up the ground. You're flooded with water. You're cursed, by trying to keep pumps going, and uh, you have to ca- case the holes because the weather, the ground is inclined to tumble in at eight and nine foot de- depths, huge
9: holes. There was this church. It was the time of the rural electrification and I was on this job with two electricians. I was still the apprentice and uh, we were wiring this church for light and heat. And uh, the church must have had what must have been the first all-electric confession box in this country because the parish priest wanted to have a light to read by when the clients were slack and a foot warmer for the cold weather and the buzzer that could be rung by his housekeeper from the house to acquaint him of the fact that uh, his ministrations were urgently required in another part of the parish.
4: I remember talking to a a blacksmith in County Carlow and he had electricity in his forge now in a small farm as well as the forge he brought me into the forge and he, he was quite a progressive little man he had um, drills and saws and a thing blowing the uh, fire all worked electrically in the forge and he was very pleased with them and I was admiring this and said that's very good Well, I said now come and I'll show you the best thing I have and he brought me out and he showed me the light he had in his farmyard and I said why is that the best thing you have see I can do my work in the forge now until I'm finished and then I can even though it's dark I can go out and and, uh, finish my yard work as well Whereas before he said, I used to have to get all the farm work done before it was dark.
1: The French say that appetite comes in eating. The appetite for electricity seems to be insatiable, and the problem is to decide what fuel will meet that appetite most economically.
6: Towards the end of the 60s, we began to get very worried about the increased dependence we had on imported oil. We saw that all of that oil was coming from the Middle East, a rather politically unstable source, and uh, we began uh, making our plans for diversifying away from it. Uh, we, The government made the decision that the ESP should get on with planning a nuclear station. We were proved right by the events of the Arab Action in 1973. Uh, We have developed plans for a nuclear station and we're keeping them right up to date in accordance with the government decision. But a number of things have happened meantime to slow down the urgency of a nuclear station. First of all, the recession itself meant that we haven't had growth for three or four years. Uh, The government made us an allocation of the gas find off Kinsale And because of the price of oil, some of the more outlying areas of turf are now uh, economic and Bournemouth are getting on with the job of producing turf from them. So the urgency for a nuclear station really receded because of these events.
1: A significant recent development was the opening of the pump storage scheme at Thurlock Hill.
6: It's not a new scheme, there are other ones in the world, but it is a totally new technology uh, for Ireland. You know, one of the problems we have about electricity is that you can't store it. But uh, Torlock Hill provides a form of storage in that uh, plant that would otherwise be shut down at nighttime when load is very light. We use it instead for pumping water up to a, a, an upper lake, artificial lake, which, which we constructed. And then during the daytime, uh, when we need electricity, when Industry comes on and uh, increase cooking and lighting and so on. We use it, we use the water there to gener- uh, generate electricity on
1: its way down. Is that economic? It does not cost you more to pump the water up than the value you get out of it coming down again?
6: No, because uh, we're using uh, our most efficient plant, which would otherwise be shut down. Uh, we get three units of electricity out for every four we use in pumping.
1: What does the future hold? I asked Moore McDowell. Very difficult. Um, I wouldn't
7: like to be in the chief executive's shoes. Uh, It's a very, very difficult business planning for the future in the ESB. When you think that if you want a power station, let's suppose you're going to go nuclear and you're going to build a power station which is going to come on stream. Um, You plan today for a station which is going to come on stream anything up to 10 years from now. So you're not only attempting to forecast the demand for electricity 10 years ahead, but you're... Locking the system into a method of generating electricity based on your, your hunch as to how relative prices of coal, oil, and so on are going to behave. Um, at the moment, they have problems. They don't know what oil is going to be available. Uh, will there be more strikes of natural gas? <clears throat> will coal prices rise relative to oil or oil relative to coal? Um, will nuclear power be, be acceptable politically? You know, there's all this problem about in Sweden and the United States. And all these things make it extremely difficult for the ESB to forecast. We know that there's going to be a growth in the demand for electricity and they're going to have to meet it. And they would, I suppose most people in the ESB would say, well, we'll operate on the basis of 10% per annum, being the, what we're likely to experience over the next 15, 20, 25 years to the end of the century. But the, the problems that they face in planning the capacity to meet that and to meet it optimally in the sense of at the minimum cost are really appalling. Um, if you think of it, it's, it's a sort of Russian roulette, except in, instead of having only one bullet in the six chambers, there are about five of them. Your chances of getting the right answer are a bit remote.
1: What has the ESB achieved in its first 50 years?
9: I heard Gunnar Rugheimer say one time that if you drew a line around Dublin that roughly corresponded to the old pale, that the rest of the country was, in attitude, at least a hundred years behind... Uh, what was inside the pail but with electricity uh, and television this is no longer true um, That I suppose you could say electricity seduced Ireland into the 20th century <laughs>